In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. We like to say that actions speak louder than words, don't we? When things are hard, it's one thing for someone to tell you or even to promise you that they will be there for you. But it is something else entirely when they actually are there for you. And we know from experience, some people are often little more than talk. They say they'll be there, but they may or may not show up. And so their talk becomes cheap. But we all know people who say they will be there. And we know from our past experience with them that we really can count on them being there. Some people just prove themselves to be eminently dependable, don't they? Now, when it comes to God, we should know that he is eminently more dependable than even those most eminently dependable people. But sometimes we doubt, especially when the dark seems so utterly overwhelming. Sometimes we doubt. Israel was no different in that way, and from her story, I think we can find a lot of encouragement. Think about Israel. God had spoken. His people had his word through the law and the prophets. But still, some days it was just so hard not to doubt. Think of those awful days for 2nd century Judah that we read about last week in 1st Maccabees. If you weren't here last week and haven't had a chance to listen to the sermon online, I encourage you to do that because it sort of sets things up for our study of Daniel. But think of those awful days for those 2nd century people of Judah Pagans were defiling the Lord's temple. Pagans were killing Jews for obeying the Lord's good law. Many of their fellow Jews were giving in and apostatizing, worshiping pagan gods, giving up God's law. And their children were being enticed into a pagan way of life. The faithful cried out to the Lord. They cried out with pleas like the one of Psalm 86. God, arise and let your enemies be scattered. They prayed and they prayed. They cried out and they were faithful. And they watched as their friends and family were murdered for their faithfulness. And it continued. Where was God? Did he really care for his people? These questions came up over and over. And so the author of Daniel looked back to the last time this happened, to the days of the Babylonian exile. The purpose of the book of Daniel was to remind the people of the Lord's past faithfulness to their ancestors. Daniel served as an exhortation to stand firm in faith, trusting in the Lord, knowing that he's not just talk, but that he does what he promises. And they could look back to their own history to see it. And so he begins in Daniel 1 and he writes, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar. That's in the Old Testament, a name often used for Babylon. And he took them to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, Assuming that number isn't being used symbolically, and it might be, but assuming it's not, these opening events of Daniel took place in 605 or 604 B.C. Jehoiakim was put on the throne as a puppet king of the Egyptians. These were the last days of Judah, or I should say the last years. He was a puppet king of the Egyptians. He'd been on the throne for four or five years. But when Nebuchadnezzar defeated Egypt, well, Jehoiakim became a puppet of the Babylonians. Jehoiakim was an utterly evil king. The rabbis described him as a godless tyrant who engaged in incest and murder. Through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord repeatedly rebuked him and warned him of coming judgment. And here we see the beginnings of that judgment. What's described here in Daniel 1, it actually sounds very much like the siege that Nebuchadnezzar laid against Jerusalem in 598 B.C., a few years later, which would mean we need to do more work to sort out the date that's given here. I won't bore you with that. But it's possible also that the Babylonians began applying some of this this sort of pressure earlier. Giving a warning letting Jehoiakim and his people know who was in control. So Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest of the Neo-Babylonian emperors, he came to Jerusalem and he showed the city, he showed its king, he showed its people who the boss was, who was in control. He took sacred vessels from the temple The text isn't specific, but it implies that these were vessels and tools associated with the altar, with sacrifices, sacred vessels. And the point wasn't that they were worth a bunch of money because they were made of gold. The point was that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to demonstrate the defeat of the God of Israel. Taking the city showed the people that they were now the subjects of the Babylonian king taking the consecrated vessels of the Lord from his temple and putting them in his own temple treasury, that showed Israel that her God was now subject to the gods of Babylon. As we'll see later in the book of Daniel, the Lord was no longer Israel's to call upon, but Babylon's. And along with those temple vessels, Nebuchadnezzar took with him a group of young men, the first of the exiles. And he took them so that they could be taught the ways of the Babylonians. 
They were hostages. Nebuchadnezzar probably expected some of them to be sent back to serve a Babylonian administration in Jerusalem once they'd been convinced of Babylon's superiority. But I think taking these men from the royal and noble families more than anything else was meant to show the rulers of Judah that Nebuchadnezzar was now sovereign over them. Even their children belonged to him and to his gods. That might sound a little bit familiar with certain perspectives in our own society. But notice that little note slipped into verse 2. You might have missed it. It's easy to pass over. Verse 1 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege to Jerusalem, the mighty emperor. But verse 2 tells us that it was the Lord who gave him King Jehoiakim and the temple vessels. The Lord not only allowed this, he orchestrated it. The Lord is the one who is sovereign, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Antiochus Epiphanes, not Caesar, not Charles III or Justin Trudeau. The Lord, the God of Israel, is sovereign over kings and nations, and maybe most important, over his own people. And in those few words in verse 2, we are reminded of the Lord's faithfulness. Not just to rescue his people as he promises. Not just to prosper his people as he promises. But also to discipline his people when they are unfaithful. Something else we often ignore, but something else he promises. And there's something else that might slip by us, too. In the biblical literature most closely related to Daniel, the words God gave are more frequently used. God gave this, God gave that. In fact, we'll see that later on in this, in this chapter. But here, it's not God gave, it's the Lord gave. It's a reminder that this is not merely the God of Israel acting, but the God who is Lord over all. It's a very deliberate choice of words here, I think. The God of Israel is Lord over every nation and over every king, even mighty Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar thought that all this had happened because of his might. But all that might was given him by the Lord. He thought that he had this puny God of Israel captive to his gods, his temple vessels, and his temple treasury. But the writer of Daniel subtly reminds us, no. The Lord allowed this to happen. He is still in control. Brothers and sisters, whatever is happening today... And again, I urge you, if you weren't here last week, to go online and listen to that sermon. Whatever is happening today in our world to the church, this is a reminder that God is sovereign and in control. That someone living through the terrors of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes would point his people back 
to Daniel to remind them that the Lord is in control, it ought to cause us to do the same sort of thing. To look back not only to the history of God and His dealings with His people, but to do that while also hearing His words and His promises to them through the prophets. We look around us and we ask why God would allow Christendom after 2,000 years to fall. Why is God allowing the church in the West to wither and die, to fall out of favor? And I think with those questions, we need to look back to the story of God and His people. In Israel, He established an earthly kingdom to represent His rule in the world, to witness His light in the midst of the darkness. He didn't expect perfection, but He did expect faithfulness. And when Israel refused to be faithful, the Lord disciplined her, just as he had promised, and as a witness to the nations. Now the Lord, the Lord preferred to be known to the nations through his blessing of his own people. So the nations would look at Israel and say, wow, those people follow, they obey, they love this Lord, and he blesses them, not like our gods. But if that wasn't going to work out, if the people would not be faithful, the Lord's sovereign holiness, even His goodness and His faithfulness, would be shown through cursing and eventually, on the other side of that discipline, His sovereignty would be known through His restoration of His people in fulfillment of His promises. Christendom, I think, has befallen much the same fate. I think as Christians it's become very common to say, well, the church, it's not like Israel. Israel was a people, it was a nation. The church is, it's a bunch of individual people who believe in God. But brothers and sisters, all we have to do is look at our own history and see that God still works through not just us as individual people, but through peoples and through nations. The gospel went out And it conquered an empire. Christendom was born. And a lot like Israel, Christendom represented Jesus' rule on earth. It prefigured that day when the gospel and the church will have finally accomplished their mission to usher in God's new creation, to prepare us, to prepare his creation for the return of Jesus and the consummation of all of God's promises. Like Israel, Christendom was not perfect, not by any means, but it did represent a people and nations that lived the gospel, people who were faithful. I don't think we these days give our Christian ancestors enough credit. We like to criticize them for all the bad things. But we don't recognize any longer the dramatic transformation that took place in the conversion of those pagan empires and nations into Christendom. Or the profound witness to the power of the gospel, a witness I think we're often again unaware of. Because we now have the benefit of living in a world transformed by that gospel. Unless you've studied history, 
Most of us have no idea just how sick and twisted and dark the world was before it was overtaken by the gospel. As centuries passed, however, our gospel light began to waver and dim. The gospel had once put an end to slavery in the Roman world. And then Christians brought it back to our shame. Christian kings began to colonize colonize and exploit less developed peoples. And yes, the Lord used those efforts to carry the gospel to new corners of the world and often to judge wicked peoples. I don't think it's any coincidence that it was only a little over a decade after the great Aztec temple was dedicated in what's now Mexico City with the wholesale slaughter of tens of thousands of people on its altar. I don't think it's a coincidence that barely a decade later, the Spanish came and wiped their their civilization out. Cortez was not a good guy either. But the Lord uses these things to take the gospel out and to judge and bring down pagan kings and wicked peoples. But then those Christian kings plundered those nations and mistreated their people. Often in the name of Jesus. Wars broke out and Christian nations rose up against Christian nations. I do not think it should be any surprise that the church in Europe began its period of rapid decline and and godless philosophies and secularism so quickly replacing it in the years following World War I. A war in which ostensibly Christian countries brutally fought and slaughtered each other for nothing more than regional hegemony. (coughs) (coughs) Thank you. In the years after that war, Karl Karl Barth, the German theologian, or Swiss theologian rather, wrote that his seminary students had lost their ability to smile. The gospel light was all but stamped out. The joy of Jesus was all but gone, even amongst seminary students. In the century since, Europe has become almost entirely secular. And now here across the Atlantic, the trend marches on. And it should not be any surprise. As a people, we worship the gods of money and of self and of materialism and sex and power. We murder our children before they're even born. We here in North America were once Christian nations. But as with Israel in the Old Testament... The Lord will not allow a wicked people to represent him. Discipline will come to both the nation and its church. And I think that's precisely what we are seeing today. But how often do we hear Christians acknowledge that it is the Lord who has given us into the hands of our enemies? It's a difficult thing to say or to admit. Maybe it's a bit speculative. But I think it's the natural assumption that we must draw when we look at the history of the dealings of God and his people. 
So if there's something we can learn from Daniel and from the bigger biblical story, it's to recognize how the Lord works, and more importantly, that he is at work. He doesn't just talk, he acts. Brothers and sisters, the Lord was as present with his people in Babylon as he had been in Jerusalem. And while it's a terrible thought to think that we might be living under the disciplining hand of the Lord today, we can still take great comfort in knowing that we are nevertheless in his hand. Let us pray that we will learn the lessons he wants us to learn and that he will restore his blessings to us. Let's continue with Daniel 1, picking up at at, uh, verse 5, with those young men exiled to Babylon. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Again, to all outward appearances, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar has won. That he's the one in control. These four men's Hebrew names all reflected their faith in the God of Israel. Daniel means something like, God is my judge. Azariah, Yah, short for Yahweh, is my help. Hananiah, Yah has been gracious. Mishael, who is what God is? But this foreign pagan king renames them all. And it's not clear exactly what all four of their new names mean. But they're all intended to express that these four young men now belong to the gods of Babylon. And the king of Babylon will now take care of them. They will eat from his table as they are trained in the superior wisdom of Babylon. But the story goes on. We can imagine most of these young men going along with it. But Daniel, we're told, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the the, the youth who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then, let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Why did Daniel and his friends do that? Why did they reject the king's food? 
Our first guess might be that they were insistent on keeping the dietary laws of the Torah. But I don't think that's it, because they refused the king's wine, and wine wasn't part of those dietary laws. We might guess that it was because the king's food was first offered to idols, which is what happened. All the food would be offered to the idols, and whatever was left over that the gods didn't eat, the king would eat. And of course, the king never went hungry. There's another story from Daniel, or about Daniel about that. It's just not one that made it into the Bible. But the vegetables that these young men ate would have been offered to idols just like everything else. So I don't think that's it. Or it might be because to eat from the king's table meant making a public display of accepting his lordship over them. But I don't think it was any of these things. First, the arrangement was temporary. Ten days. We see later in the book that Daniel didn't have a problem eating rich food in, in his later life. But second, they did this in private. No one but the four of them and the steward knew about this arrangement. And I think the context of the story itself gives us the reason. Nebuchadnezzar had taken them to Babylon. He had renamed them, effectively submitting them to his gods. And he'd engaged them in this rigorous program of re-education for service to his court. As I read this story about these four young men, I remember learning about the Janissaries when I studied Islamic Civ as an undergraduate. Have you heard of the Janissaries? They were the elite corps of Ottoman troops. They served the sultan in his own household. They were known for their discipline and above all else for their loyalty to the sultan. But here's the creepy thing about the Janissaries. The Janissaries were entirely made up of men who had been stolen. It was considered a tax. But it was entirely made up of men who had been stolen as young boys from the Christian families of the Ottoman Empire. It was a tax on those who refused to convert. These Christian boys were converted to Islam to serve the sultan. And it sent a message. You can refuse Islam. That's your prerogative. But at any time, we can take your children and make them ours. Remember when our professor was telling us that. My stomach actually felt queasy. I think there's more than a little of that same idea going on here. And we see it in a certain way in our present culture, our present situation too. We make a wrong step and the state can take away our rights as parents. We make a wrong step and the state can re-educate our children according to its thoughts and its ideals. Now, maybe there was some doubt of the God of Israel in the minds of these four young men. I mean, they knew the scriptures. They knew the promises of God. They knew his faithfulness. But here they were in Babylon. They were given the names of pagan gods. They were forced to learn the ways of Babylonian wisdom. They were fed from this foreign king's table. 
I mean, I'm willing to cut them a little slack to forgive them for having faith, but still wanting some kind of confirmation. If they were going to be the elite of the Babylonian court, would it be because of Nebuchadnezzar or because of the Lord? And so they worked out a deal with the steward in charge of their food. The chief eunuch wouldn't cooperate because he might get in trouble if things went wrong. He was part of the program, too. But the steward, I mean, he could have all this rich food for himself. And so these four young men would know that if they prospered despite a meager diet of vegetables and water, they would know then that the Lord was truly with them. Nebuchadnezzar had no idea what was happening, but this was not for his benefit. That will come later in Daniel. This, this test was for the four young men so that they would know with absolute certainty that their God was with them in Babylon, that their God was with them in their exile in this foreign and pagan land. Now, continuing with the text at verse 17, we see what happened. As these four youths, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them was found, was found like, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And then a final note, that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So we see it here again. God gave. Just as he gave over Jehoiakim and Jerusalem and his own sacred vessels from the temple, just as he gave all those things into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, he gave to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. When they stood before the king on exam day, they had ten times the wisdom and understanding, not just of the other young men in this program, but of the experienced court magicians and enchanters. That didn't just come from their study. The Lord was with them. He gave. And then that final note that anticipates the whole book of Daniel. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. If the book begins in 605 B.C., That means 66 years that Daniel was there in the court. He would outlast and outlive Nebuchadnezzar and all of his successors. He would see the fall of the kings of Babylon and their conquest by the Persians. Daniel would see the Lord's justice. And this last statement drives home the point that kings and their kingdoms rise and fall. But the Lord is always sovereign over all. In closing, I want us to think about these statements that God gave. First, that he gave his people over to Nebuchadnezzar in discipline. We've looked at what that means. 
And now here we see God giving to these four faithful young men wisdom that they might persevere in faithfulness in those difficult times. And not just persevere in faith, but that they would prosper in this foreign land. They were thoroughly steeped in the wisdom of Babylon. But it was ultimately wisdom the Lord gave them by which they persevered and that gave them favor in the eyes of these pagans. What are we to do in the midst of trials? What are we to do in a world in which the Lord has sovereignly allowed Christendom to collapse and His church to dwindle and fall into disfavor? Brothers and sisters, ask the Lord for wisdom. Learn from the world, but listen to the Lord and pursue His wisdom. It's not an easy thing to do. I'm thinking of Daniel and his friends. Torah, the law, that's black and white. Do this, don't do that. Clearly drawn lines. Wisdom is harder. Wisdom is knowing what to do in situations where the answer may not be a matter of black and white. Wisdom is knowing where to draw the line in those times when there's no law that makes it obvious. Sometimes walking in wisdom is to walk a tightrope. I think today the church is struggling a great deal to walk that rope. And it may be that we lack wisdom. Some Christians try to walk that rope and they fall off the side on this way into progressivism or wokeness or whatever you want to call it. Other Christians fall off the other side into culture warring or the new buzzword is Christian nationalism. Some of us capitulate to our Babylonian conquerors. We sort of take the path of least resistance. We let the culture rebuke us rather than the Lord. And we end up in apostasy. And others of us fail to recognize that the Babylonians may be the agent of the Lord's discipline. And instead of listening for the Lord's rebuke, instead of listening for the Lord's teaching, instead of listening to hear what we have to learn in our situation, we go to war with Babylon. And try to win a fight that we cannot and will never win until we first learn the lesson the Lord is teaching us. What we need instead is the godly wisdom to remain faithful in our exile while allowing the Lord to do a work of repentance and reform in the heart of his church. In the heart of the whole church and in our hearts as well. And again, to say it's not easy would be an understatement. I guess you could say that's why it's called wisdom. And it's why the scriptures call us so earnestly to seek that wisdom. Because wisdom, brothers and sisters, wisdom doesn't just fall in your lap. The great sages of Israel tell us that the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. Again, to pursue Him, to pursue His plans, to pursue His ways 
to pursue holiness and to cast off all worldliness. And to pursue the Lord, brothers and sisters, that means to steep ourselves in His Word, in the very place where He reveals Himself and His ways, where He speaks to us. If you are not steeped in His Word, if you do not know Him and know His ways, friends, there is no hope of obtaining godly wisdom. But to pursue the Lord also means to speak to Him. Pray. And when was the last time you prayed for wisdom? Let God speak to you through His Word and then speak to Him. And while you're speaking to Him, while you're worshiping Him, ask for wisdom for yourself, for your brothers and sisters, for your children and your husband, your family, and for your church. For your ministers, for your bishops, for the churches and their people and their pastors down the street and across town and all over this world, pray for wisdom. I think this is what we see of Daniel and his friends. They were steeped in the law and they were steeped in the prophets. They were steeped in the Psalms and they knew the story of their people. And they prayed. And they worship the Lord. Second, we need, to fellowship, we need the fellowship of the church. You cannot pursue the Lord on your own. You need to do so with his people. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, none of them went into this alone. They stood firm and in doing so they stood together. They strengthened and exhorted each other. And so should we. We need not only the support of fellow believers in order to stand firm, but in the pursuit of godly wisdom, we need the witness and discernment of the church, of all those who have gone before us, and of all those who stand with us today. If we go it alone, we will not stand. Again, brothers and sisters, it's hard. We live in hard times, and I fully expect the times will get harder. And yet, you and I have something far greater than Daniel and his friends had. We have something far greater than those faithful Jews struggling through the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes had. They had the promises of the Lord to their people. They had his promises in the Exodus and his promises in Deuteronomy. They had his exhortations and his promises and his warnings given through the prophets. They had his words. And they knew their story. And they could look back to his care for them in the Exodus. And they did that every year at Passover. And they were reminded of the Lord's faithfulness. Those men and women living in the days of Antiochus could look back to the faithfulness of God to Daniel and know that he would be just as faithful to them. And that was powerful. But friends, consider that you and I not only look back on all of that, but we also look back to Jesus. When we come to his table... When we eat his bread and drink his wine, we participate 
in the events of that greater exodus by which the Lord fulfilled all of his promises to his people. We can look back to the cross and see the love and the grace and the mercy and the faithfulness of the Lord on full display as it never had been before. We see the Lord of glory humbled himself to become one of us. The Lord of glory who shed his blood on a cross for our sake. To shed his blood that we might live with him and know his new creation. Actions that speak just as loud, if not louder, than every word he ever spoke before. And two, our Lord has poured out his own spirit on us and made us his temple. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus and in the spirit, we have the sure and certain assurance that God is with us. That we are in his hands. And that he will see us through the valley of the shadow of death. And that we will one day know those green pastures and still waters. He will see us through, as the psalmist sang, for his name's sake. Because he has not only given us his promise, but he has sealed that promise with his own name, with his own reputation, with his own blood. And in response, brothers and sisters, let us be faithful. Faithful stewards of his word, faithful stewards of his gospel, and let us pray for and seek his wisdom. That no matter how, how deep the darkness gets, we might fear him and walk as a gospel people. That we might be the light and the darkness that he has made us to be. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, mercifully look upon our infirmities and our trials. And in all our dangers and necessities, stretch out your right hand to help and defend us. Give us humility to know your chastisement. Pour out your wisdom on us that we might discern your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.